Welcome to the Last Question Podcast, a production of the Data Lab. Hello, I'm Lily Hyam. And I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question Podcast, a production of DataFest, the ongoing series of data and artificial intelligence innovation events run by the Data Lab, Scotland's innovation centre for data and AI, hosted by the University of Edinburgh. Thank you for joining us for our inaugural podcast. We'll be bringing you fascinating insights and ideas from people at the very cutting edge of science, data, AI, technology and philosophy, and probably lots of other fields as well. Many of our guests will be people speaking at DataFest events, so if you enjoy what you hear, you can come and see them in person or online. Absolutely. Uh, This year, our flagship conference, Data Summit, is taking place at the EICC in Edinburgh on the 3rd and 4th of November 2022. Podcast listeners get a special discount on tickets, so make sure to listen out for that towards the end of today's episode. Check out datafest.global for all the latest news and announcements about all of our events. As a bit of background, I work at the Data Lab as the head of DataFest, so it's my job to bring fascinating innovation to the forefront of people's imaginations through our events. And I am a senior automation engineer at the BBC World Service. I test the software that brings news to billions of people around the world with both human and automation methods. And we're both incredibly passionate about all things innovation, all things science. So, to get started, Lily, what do you know about nanotechnology? Very little. Besides that? Okay. The nanoscale is anything between a billionth and a millionth of a metre. That's what I know. Very good start. Luckily, we just had a fantastic interview with a fascinating doctor of material science and nanotechnology. We discussed uh, the future of what nanotechnology might bring us. Uh, We discussed the search for extraterrestrial life, the, uh, the definitions of life and intelligence that we use, the Fermi paradox, uh, spider silk trousers, pet slime molds. It was a, a really fascinating conversation. Today we're going to be talking about nanotechnology and the future of materials with Dr. Laura Tripaldi, a material scientist and author of the fascinating book Parallel Minds, Discovering the Secret Intelligence of Materials. Dr. Tripaldi completed her PhD in material science and nanotechnology at the University of Milano Bukoka and currently works as a science writer focusing on the philosophical aspects of material science and technology. She'll also be making her DataFest debut later this year at Data Summit on the 3rd and 4th of November 2022. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So for those who haven't read Parallel Minds yet, uh, could you give us a quick overview of your research and some of the ideas that you raise in the book? Sure. Uh, So... I am a material scientist, uh, and um, actually the idea of this book uh, uh, starts from my research as a PhD student. Um, The core idea of Parallel Minds uh, is this notion of the intelligence of materials. Um, And um, this idea basically relates to the fact that we typically think of materials as passive uh, objects, passive instruments. Um, And I have found, uh, however, throughout my research that several materials can actually show a certain degree of intelligence. For example, there are many materials that can react to external stimuli. Uh, They can also remember their history or they can also self-organize in complex uh, structures. Uh, In addition to this aspect, Uh, The idea of the intelligence of materials to me uh, also refers to the way 
in which our human um, culture interacts with material technologies. Um, materials are actually uh, an integral part of our human culture, and they also are a part of our own intelligence. They help us adapt to a changing world, a changing environment, uh, and they help us deal with uh, the challenges uh, of the future. Um, and uh, also, this is not unique to humans. There are several animals that can uh, do the same with the, the materials that they produce. For example, spiders, snails, or bees, and several other uh, other animals. Um, and uh, the only difference is that as humans, we're kind of able to um, to disentangle this material production from our own biology, and therefore we are able to produce. Uh, a wide variety of different materials. Yeah, I love in the book that I didn't just learn about materials, I also learned about animals and humans as well. Um, one of the first things you cover in the book is a look back at the history of material science and how it was both very old and largely forgotten. The fabrics, clothes, animal skins, weaves, ropes, tapestries, functional and non-functional artefacts are not spoken of as much as things like stone and metal tools, despite being such an important part of human culture and survival. Why do you think it is that this material culture is not spoken about as much when looking at human history? Yeah, um, I think this is a, a great point. And actually, in my book, uh, I try to argue um, that our view of technology um, is kind of biased towards certain kinds of materials instead of others. Um, I think this is evident from the fact uh, that we talk, for example, about a Stone Age, a Bronze Age, an Iron Age, and today we also speak about a Silicon Age. Um, and to me, um, these words uh, show us that we kind of have a cultural preference towards certain hard materials, let's say, um, because we consider them to be a more significant part of our culture and uh, they, we consider them to be more significant for the development of human civilization. Um, I think that part of the reason of this uh, is certainly due to, to a matter of uh, preservation, let's say, because soft and organic materials, of course, uh, such as textiles, pigments, fibers, um, are of course more perishable compared to harder materials, uh, and therefore they are way less likely to remain intact throughout centuries and millennia. Um, but I think this is not the only reason. Um, there is growing evidence uh, that some of our most ancient materials, uh, for example, uh, textile fibers, uh, were actually soft materials. Um, and I think that the cultural significance of these soft materials is actually way underestimated and underrepresented. Um, I also, in my book, I speculate that maybe part of the reason of this uh, is also uh, related to the fact that the production of these, uh, let's call them soft technologies, uh, is often associated with uh, femininity. It was women that uh, in ancient times and even today uh, are mostly associated with these kinds of technology. And therefore, I think there might be some kind of gender bi the bias at play also. Yeah, the uh, invisibility of women's work and it not being recorded as much as like a, a technology to pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, I also liked how uh, there was a picture in the book as well of, um, I think it was a, 
some kind of woven material from 90,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is like this uh, ancient fibers uh, that uh, essentially are the most ancient fibers, uh, textile fibers ever discovered. Uh, and um, these fibers actually were used by uh, the Neanderthals, the Neanderthal men, so not uh, even humans. Uh, and uh, this kind of shows that um, fiber technology and weaving are actually kind of uh, not exclusive to the human species and so ancient that uh, they are really um, so pervasive. Uh, and I find this really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and there's another thing that I actually hadn't thought about before that you bring up is that um, so as someone that does some programming in my day job, uh, I found it really fascinating to find out that uh, looms, and I think you specifically mentioned the jacquard loom, can be can be considered one of the first forms of programming. And that, in fact, it inspired the development of one of the first computer designs, the analytic engine, which was made by Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage. How is it that weaving is in some ways like programming and like data storage? Yeah, um, so the analytical engine uh, that was uh, designed by Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace um, actually was really uh, inspired by the way the Jacquard loom uh, was used to automatically weave uh, complex patterns. Um, and uh, let's say that there are some superficial analogies between weaving and computer science, more superficial. Uh, for example, uh, there is an analogy in the interfaces of these machines because the Jacquard loom actually was programmed by using uh, punched cards uh, that are very similar to the ones that were used in early computers. Um, also, early computer memories, uh, known as magnetic core memories, uh, were very similar to tiny, small looms, and they were actually hand-woven by women, typically, who would manually encode the digital information in uh, these devices. Um, but on a less superficial level, uh, let's say, uh, I believe that the reason why uh, the loom and weaving in general um, are such powerful models for contemporary technologies uh, is related to the way uh, in which weaving handles uh, information. Um, so if we compare weaving a pattern to writing on a piece of paper, uh, I think that we can really understand the power of weaving because um, when we write on a piece of paper, uh, the material substrate, the piece of paper and the ink are actually just passive elements in the process of encoding information. Um, on the other hand, uh, when we weave a pattern in a fabric, uh, there is a much more intimate relationship between the information and the material substrate on which it is encoded. Uh, and this is also why uh, I think that weaving is a model not only for computer science, but also probably for contemporary material science and contemporary nanotechnology. When we uh, think about the patterns uh, encoding information and instructions in materials uh, in this way, it kind of reminds us of, of uh, how the many proteins that make up organic life, including DNA, are also made up of a series of patterns and instructions that are uh, instantiated in chemical form. Um, a lot of the space of, in the book is given to various ideas around what constitutes life and intelligence in relation to the way uh, non-living materials and simple life, such as slime molds, which I love, like slime molds are just top animal, not even animal, just like top, top thing. Yeah. They're 
Oh, I absolutely love them. Pet slime mold. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love a pet slime mold. That'd be amazing. Like super low maintenance. Um, so, um, like how these slime molds can interact, like seemingly intelligently with their environment, but without anything that we would really traditionally consider a brain or a centralized processor. So, do you think that the way that we currently define life, uh, do you think that's an adequate way to describe life, or do you think we need to start rethinking that? Um, yeah, so um, let's say that in my book, I, I kind of tried to deconstruct certain uh, misconceptions uh, or prejudices around uh, common ideas uh, such as life and intelligence. Uh, and I've tried to suggest alternative definitions of these concepts. Um, as you mentioned, um, I believe, for instance, that our idea of intelligence as a centralized system um, is actually inspired by our own human biology, our own centralized nervous system uh, with a brain. But this view is actually very limited when we look around at the natural world. Um, and I try to present these alternative views of intelligence by talking about um, both some living and non-living examples. Uh, so in the field of uh, biology and living systems, I, I discuss uh, the example of the slime mold, uh, Physarum polycephalum, which I also really love. When I encountered uh, this, um, this organism first, I was really excited uh, because the slime mold is really one example of a being that does not possess any kind of centralized uh, control system, let's say. But still, uh, despite being extremely simple um, and extremely delocalized, it is able to solve very complex optimization problems that are challenging even for our most advanced computers. Um, so this is one example, but there are some examples also um, in the field of artificial materials, non-living uh, artificial materials, um, such as, for example, soft robots. Um, many soft robots uh, are actually based on similar decentralized structures, um, but still, despite this, they are able to exhibit certain specific kinds of uh, intelligence and problem solving. So in a way, um, to go back to, to your question, uh, I believe that a similar misconception also applies to our view of life. Uh, because we are really used to thinking of life uh, as exclusively based on uh, DNA encoded uh, information. So we actually believe that in order for a complex system to exist, um, the instructions to build it uh, need to be written somewhere. Uh, and uh, DNA kind of answers uh, this need for the instruction manual of life. Uh, but uh, actually, this is not really the case. Um, I, I, this is actually why I insist so much on the concept of the self-assembly in my book, uh, because uh, actually many material systems are actually able to spontaneously take shape from the bottom up without any kind of centralized uh, control system and without any kind of instruction manual. I love the idea of maybe uh, using the intelligence of organisms to inspire new forms of computing and maybe one day we'll have semi-biological computers using the intelligence of organisms. Um, I think yeah, that's just a really cool idea. Yeah, this is uh, super interesting. It's a super interesting field of, of computing. Um, it's 
called often unconventional computing. And there are several kinds of uh, computers built from, uh, for example, uh, chemical reactions, chemical systems, and the chemical computers are actually very interesting, but also computers uh, built with living systems. And there is also a whole field of uh, physarum computing, which really uses slime molds to build computational systems. And this is really fascinating to me. I really love the the anecdote in the book about the slime mold that um, found basically the path of least resistance and started to emulate the um, the Tokyo subway uh, subway system. And like the, when you compare the two maps that the slime mold and the subway take, they're uncannily close. It's so, so interesting. And I really think we should let slime mold make more of our infrastructure decisions. Because like, I live in Edinburgh and the place is complete chaos. And I'm pretty sure the slime mold could do a better job of city planning than perhaps Edinburgh City Council. Maybe but don't tell them that. We might just edit this out. This is all going to get cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but I get it. Absolutely. Also, like someone tried to uh, plan uh, the colonization of the moon with a slime mold. So they actually put a slime mold on a model of the moon, trying to figure out the best way to build infrastructure on the moon uh, and making uh, letting the slime mold do the city planning or the moon planning, let's say. And I think this was a really fun uh, experiment. It's also a classic human approach. You know, why do the work ourselves if we can just get something else to do it for us? Yeah. <laughs> well, on the topic of uh, other celestial bodies, um, we enjoyed how you relate this idea of intelligent life potentially being very different from our current definitions in the search for extraterrestrial life in the universe. NASA's definition of life as a self-sustaining chemical system, which is capable of Darwinian evolution, seems perhaps very Earth-centric. And also, like you were saying earlier, how the way we think of intelligence is quite anthropocentric as well. Um, you mentioned the Fermi paradox, which describes while we haven't found extraterrestrial life, despite the vastness of space and all the potential planets that are possible that could hold life um, with one explanation being that we just don't recognize what we're looking for uh, what we're looking at as being intelligent life what do you think we need to change in our mindset in relation to the search for extraterrestrial life um yeah so actually um several uh, researchers have argued in recent years that our definition of life needs somehow to be generalized and updated. Uh, and I really agree with this idea. I think it's really interesting to try to uh, extend and generalize such an important concept of, uh, of life. Um, and um, instead uh, of focusing on Earth-specific definitions, um, there are many new definitions that actually try to be more and more general. The search for extraterrestrial life uh, typically uh, focuses um, on the search for specific chemical fingerprints, for example. Uh, and uh, so it is really associated with the specific uh, um, chemicals and specific materials. Uh, but life might also be defined in a more general way by focusing on three main functions. Um, and these three main functions are typically considered to be uh, segregation, 
So some kind of separation of the living organism from its environment that might be realized in many different ways. Uh, in our case, um, terrestrial life uses cell membranes to achieve this uh, segregation, but there might be other ways. Um, the second function is metabolism. So metabolism is essentially um, the way in which a certain living organism uh, deals with uh, energy uh, to maintain its own structure. And there might be many different kinds of metabolism. We already have different kinds of metabolism in terrestrial life. Uh, and so we might start thinking of different, also different kinds of energy, for example, like uh, mechanical energy, uh, not just limited, for example, to solar energy or chemical energy as we do uh, when thinking about terrestrial life. Uh, and finally, there is the concept of self-replication or reproduction. So the idea that a living system somehow must be able to, to uh, replicate and essentially uh, also carry some kind of information to the next generation. So some kind of evolution, but it does not have to be Darwinian evolution. And this process is not necessarily related to DNA. There might be other ways to carry this information to the next uh, generations. So um, not only this is interesting in relation to the search for extraterrestrial life, but also I believe that this is interesting um, when we look at um, different forms of life that potentially are already existing around us here on Earth, not just in space. Uh, there are many examples of artificial life. Uh, that are being produced by material science and nanotechnology today, and also biotechnology. I'm thinking of uh, xenobots, for example. Um, and we should seriously start asking ourselves whether or not these systems are already living uh, and uh, what we can do potentially to build uh, an artificial living system. I, think, I find it quite interesting that NASA's definition of life is so narrow because it completely discounts any sort of artificial life whatsoever or any sort of I don't know alien race out there that has evolved way beyond the point of any sort of biological bodies um there's I've read lots of arguments about how one of the ways we might find life at some point is just evidence of their engineering products like Dyson spheres or something that harnesses massive amounts of energy it's quite likely that anything that can do that is probably in a post-biological state and therefore as far as NASA is concerned probably wouldn't count as life and I just find that a little bit odd a bit weird. Yeah, it really is fascinating. Um, and on the topic of fascinating, I think it's time we talk about spiders. Uh, <laughs> if you ask the question to a group of people about what natural materials they can think of that are really strong, apart from obvious things like diamonds, I think a lot of people would mention spider silk, as it is quite famously surprisingly strong. And we all love spiders, don't we? Big fan of spiders, yeah. actually. Ever since I read... Um Children of Time by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Mm, good one, that. Yeah, big spiders. Love them. Yeah, and no one has any problem with spiders. Literally nobody. No. <laughs> a popular example is the hypothetical ability of a spider silk thread to be able to stop a Boeing 747 plane in mid-flight. What is it about spider silk that makes it so strong? And can we somehow use this in our own technology? Yeah, spider silk is definitely one of the most amazing materials in nature. Uh, and um, it is um, typically considered to be the strongest natural fiber um, in the world that we know of. Um, and 
it's true, people often focus on the super strength of spider silk. Uh, and this uh, super strength is actually strongly related to the microstructure and nanostructure of spider silk. So spider silk is essentially made of protein. Um, and um, these protein are actually able to self-organize uh, in ordered structures. And by this folding and self-organization of these uh, protein molecules, we can actually obtain an extremely complex uh, structure that provides both um, structural integrity and strength and also uh, flexibility and elongability. And the, the combination of these two properties uh, is what makes spider silk extremely tough. Uh, and toughness is essentially the ability of a material to um, dissipate uh, energy, essentially. Uh, so, for example, when a fly or an insect hits the spider web, um, instead of breaking, the spider web is able to um, take on the kinetic energy of the insect and dissipate it by using uh, its internal structure. Uh, so this dissipation capability is essentially what makes spider silk so uh, incredibly tough and resistant. Uh, but um, I also believe that there are several other properties of spider silk this, um, besides um, the, this super strength and super toughness that make it extremely interesting. Um, in my book, I talk about spider silk as um, natural nanotechnology and a natural smart material. And I believe that spider silk really is extremely smart um, and it shows its intelligence uh, in many different ways. One way uh, is certainly the self-organization aspect that I already mentioned. Uh, and this is extremely interesting because actually um, the spider um, produces spider silk um, in a very, in what appears to be a very simple way. So it simply, it simply pulls out this fluid, this liquid that automatically produces this super strong uh, resistant material. And the way in which this happens is due to self-organization and self-assembly. Uh, spider silk is also um, a self-healing material. So once it is damaged, it has been shown to actually um, be able to repair itself, um, especially by using rain, rainwater, uh, and by absorbing this rainwater and using it to uh, basically repair its own internal structure. Um, we could also uh, think of spider silk as uh, an extremely sensitive material because uh, it actually changes its mechanical response depending on um, the stimuli that it receives from the environment. Um, and finally, but also very importantly for us today, spider silk um, is um, an extremely sustainable material, if we can say so, um, because actually it is made of uh, uh, completely biodegradable um, components, of course. Uh, and uh, one interesting aspect of spider silk is the fact that the spider can actually eat its own spider web to recycle the protein components of the spider web and to make a new one. So there is like really this aspect of what we would call a uh, circular economy uh, today uh, that is uh, extremely interesting and inspiring. 
um, so uh, in terms of our own technology and how we can take inspiration from spider silk for our own materials, uh, we can do this in different ways. Um, the first and most uh, simple way, uh, I would say, is to simply try to use spider silk in itself to build our own uh, um, materials and artifacts. Uh, and this is being done uh, also with uh, the assistance of biotechnology, because it's really hard to actually uh, have spiders in captivity and make them produce such big amounts of silk. Um, now there are uh, genetic engineering approaches that essentially use bacteria and yeast to make them produce the proteins of spider silk. And this is being done to try to produce spider silk on a larger scale. Uh, but also another possibility is uh, um, trying to use biomimicry. And biomimicry is essentially um, trying to create artificial materials inspired by natural materials. And so we can try to replicate some properties of spider silk uh, by studying it very closely uh, and trying to use the same properties in our own artificial uh, materials. Um, and finally, another possibility is uh, the so-called bionic approach, which is kind of a combination of the two. So trying to take uh, the natural material and modifying it uh, to incorporate some other artificial materials. And uh, in sp with spider silk, this has been done by incorporating, for example, graphene and carbon nanotubes inside of spider silk and producing an even more resistant and even stronger um, material. I like the idea of us having things made of spider silk and that making it self-repairing when it rains. So yeah. we'll hope it rains. Maybe spiders hope it rains sometimes. Yeah. Although I don't know if spiders can experience hope. Sad. I like the idea of like being able to basically grow a pair of jeans and then when I want different ones, just eat them and make new ones. Yeah. Um, I, I think that is really the direction that we should be focusing all of our research yeah. into denim technology. <laughs> Spiders are also an example of an animal that used its environment as an external form of mind. In the book, you talk about how spiders don't have the cognitive ability to store long-term information or construct mental representations of their surroundings, but they use their web as a sort of spatial memory external to its body and as a sense organ as well. It is both a tool and also a part of the spider's mind. Could you tell us more about how materials are a part of this idea of extended minds and embodied cognition and how humans can also use this kind of relationship with the materials around us? Yeah, so um, the concept of um, extended mind or extended cognition uh, was actually invented by philosophers Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And essentially this concept of extended cognition refers to uh, the ability of humans to essentially uh, delocalize part of their own intelligence. So for example, um, to make a very simple example of this, if we use a notebook to write down uh, something that we need to remember, we are actually kind of extending our own me memory to the notebook um, so that it will help us remember what we need to remember. Um, so essentially, extended cognition uh, is related to the idea that intelligence is not really limited 
to the brain, but it can be actually extended to other objects and other materials around us. Um, there has been a recent study that has suggested that spiders actually are one of the few animals besides humans that are able of um, creating an extended mind or using extended cognition. Um, so uh, the idea essentially is that with their own spider webs, um, spiders can actually extend their cognitive abilities, which are actually in themselves uh, quite uh, limited, um, and they are able to use uh, the spider silk, for example, to uh, sense their own environment. So they use the spider web as a kind of extension of their own uh, senses and their own perception, um, so that, for example, when the spider is extremely hungry, it will modify its own spider web to make it more sensitive um, by creating more tension in the threads of uh, spider silk. Uh, so that essentially um, any small insect that hits the spider web will actually trigger the reaction of the spider. Uh, so um, essentially this relationship of the spider with the spider web is a really interesting idea of how, or suggests an interesting model of how we can use materials um, uh, to really create some kind of cooperation with our own intelligence and our own mind. Um, so um, I believe that uh, in the case of humans, um, we, if we try to create materials that are increasingly intelligent, um, we can actually somehow enhance our own cognitive abilities. We can actually be able to, uh, to perceive the environment in a different way. But in order to do this, uh, we really need to maybe shift our view of technology and try to be able uh, to uh, see materials not as just passive instruments, but as um, some actual allies, let's say, of uh, our own uh, civilization and our own uh, existence as human beings. So, Gordon, if you have your genes made of spider silk, um, when you're hungry, your genes get more sensitive. Do you think that with the realisation of the negative impact of artificial materials on the environment in terms of non-biodegradability and energy inefficiency in production, that there will be a push in the invention of intelligent materials that leave no trace and have energy efficiency inspired by nature. I really hope that this will be the case. And I think that um, most of the research of now technology today is really focused on um, trying to produce more sustainable, environmentally friendly energy, sustainable materials. Um, I am, for example, very fascinated by uh, the idea uh, of living materials, for example. Um, so the idea of uh, combining uh, biological materials, as I mentioned already when talking about bionic spider silk, combining uh, natural materials with uh, artificial technologies. Um, there are There is a lot of research, for example, uh, in uh, the field of uh, this, uh, um, of these bionic materials, uh, for example, spider silk itself, but uh, even mycelium, which is a material produced uh, from uh, fungi. Uh, algae can be used to produce alternative materials, bacterial cellulose, 
Um, these are all interesting alternatives to the current materials that we use. Uh, and I think that their potential might be even enhanced if we think of new ways to combine these natural materials with the uh, technologies that we have today, such as nanomaterials in general. You can get Parallel Minds discovering the intelligence of materials from Urbanomics online or ask your local bookshop to order you a copy. If you happen to be in Edinburgh or anywhere that they have a branch, I would recommend Toppings Books because they're always beautiful shops and I love them. Uh, and I hope they sponsor us one day. Uh, it's a fascinating and thought-provoking read that I'd highly recommend to anybody interested in nanotechnology or the future of the material world. Uh, with that being said, I think it might now be time for some wild speculation. In each episode of The Last Question, we ask our guests to go beyond the scope of their research or expertise and engage in some wild speculation about their field. Laura, in your wildest dreams, what would you like to see nanotechnology achieve in our lifetimes? This is a really uh, interesting question. And um, so one thing I, I, really, I am really fascinated about in the field of artificial intelligence is this idea of creating an artificial general intelligence. So essentially trying to produce an artificial intelligence that is not simply able to, to do certain specific tasks and solve certain specific problems, but is actually able to somehow um, exhibit uh, a kind of consciousness that is generalized and it can deal with so many different problems, right? Uh, so in the field of uh, material science, I would like to uh, see people working on the idea of a general smart material, because today we have smart materials that can do very specific things and they can do them very well. They can respond to certain specific stimuli, they can adapt to certain environments, but uh, I would be very fascinated to see how we can combine all of these different properties and sensitivities uh, in one single generalized smart material. We'd like to thank Dr. Laura Tripaldi for joining us today for that incredible insight into the world and future of material science. Laura will be appearing at DataFest on the 3rd and 4th of November 2022 at the EICC in Edinburgh. You can also buy tickets to watch parts of the event live online, so head over to datafest.global for more information. And as a special offer uh, for our listeners, you can use the code TLQPODCAST, all capital letters, get 20% off your ticket price. And here we are, the first, last question. This is where we pose our listeners a question, and next week we'll discuss some of the most interesting answers. Our question this week is, how do you think nanotechnology will change the world around us? We can't wait to hear what everybody has, uh, has to say about that and all their thoughts and ideas. And you can hear all those in the next episode of the podcast, which will come out two weeks after this one. So that's it from us today. Uh, we'll be back next time with more insight, innovation, and wild speculation. Uh, feel free to drop us an email to say hello or to suggest a topic or someone to talk to or to make corrections. Um, so just email us at datafest at thedatalab.com or find us on Twitter at datafest underscore. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another episode of The Last Question.